Thank you so much to our guest today, Professor Manuel Balan. He is currently the Associate Dean of Student Affairs in the Faculty of Arts. He previously served as the Acting Director of the Institute for the Study of International Development and as an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Development. His research addresses comparative politics with a regional focus on Latin America, particularly on issues of corruption and development, corruption scandals, political competition, media and politics, transparency and anti-corruption policies, and democracy and the rule of law. Prior to his academic career, he worked in Argentina on transparency policies at the National Anti-Corruption Office. Thank you so much to Professor Balan for joining us today. Um, and to begin with, can you just introduce yourself and your research? What current research do you have um, and how did you become interested in this field of research? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for uh, having me uh, here. It's a, it's a pleasure to spend some time and, and chat. Um, so I'm a professor in political science and international development. Uh, I've been here at McGill for about 10 years. Um, and the last year I became associate dean student affairs for the faculty of arts. And so that has removed me a little bit from the sphere of international development, even though my research is still very much in that. I'm, I'm teaching far fewer classes than I did ever, ever before, basically. And this is why some of you may have not uh, heard too much about me uh, in this last couple of years. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm originally from Argentina. I was born and raised in Argentina and I lived there all my life up until I left for my PhD in the US. And then I did my PhD in, in um, University of Texas at Austin. And there, my research, I, I had worked before in Argentina on anti-corruption policies. And, and I ended up, even though I didn't want to when I started my PhD, I ended up doing focusing my research on questions of corruption. And part of why I didn't want to was because my experience in anti-corruption policies was, even though it was very enriching, it was also sort of a, like a cold shower of reality of how hard it is to do work on anti-corruption. And so uh, when it came time to do research, I was like, you know, this is really hard terrain. These, uh, these are really complex questions on which trying to get any leverage, both uh, you know, theoretically as well as empirically is, is very, very difficult. Um, and so I, for a while I, I, I toyed around with different topics to focus on because I thought that you know, it, it was very hard to do research on corruption. I still think it's really hard, but I ended up doing it anyway because it, you know, that's where my interests lie and where my experience and many times sort of our, our background sort of foreshadows what we end up doing. Um, and so right now, uh, even though I, I still do work on corruption, the project that I'm completing right now is a project actually on, on democratic threats in Latin America um, and thinking about, uh, you know, the, the different uh, trajectories of these democratic threats uh, throughout the, the last couple of decades, which have included sort of a shift of the pendulum from, from mostly left to center leaning governments. And people were talking about democratic threats um, during those governments to more sort of an incipient, you may say, right uh, leaning turn um, that happened uh, you know, in, the, in the last decade or so. Um, and now what we see is, is quite a bit of heterogeneity in terms of, of ideological leaning of different governments in the region. And, and we, see, we still see some democratic threats broadly understood. And so what, what this piece is trying to do is trying to map out the different possible threats and how they've evolved over time and whether there is some sort of ideological linkage to what the democratic threat looks like. 
how did I become interested in the topic? I think, um, you know, democratic threats, as we know, is a, is a vast literature. It's, it's something that people have been working on for, you know, a, a long time. And that research has researched in the last 10 years. And, you know, I think uh, when, it, when, it, when it comes to Latin America, um, I think there are some open questions in terms of what those threats really look like and, and how do we identify those threats. And so that's, that's how it, I think it's a pretty big question. Um, and so that's, that's what brought me to it. That's great. Thank you. Um, so based on your research, could you, of democratic threats, could you um, identify like several threats that are most prominent or, or what would you describe as democratic threats? Yeah, so so it's a it's a very good question because um, you know you know us professors, right? So any anytime we start talking about these things, it's like okay, when you talk about democratic threats, we need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about democracy. And there's quite a lot of disagreement when it comes to defining what should be included in a definition of, of democracy, right? And so we go from really bare bare bones type of definitions that focus only on elections and the fact that you know people are elected into power to really sort of deep definitions that include things related to equality and social rights and 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 a number of different things and that that are way more complex right and so if we take a bare bones uh, definition of democracy that focuses only on elections then you know, uh, things such as uh, measures to that, you know, that prevent the full participation in society of, uh, of different minority groups may not be considered a democratic threat. Um, and some people think that that in itself is a democratic threat because democracies are supposed to, you know, include everybody, that there is a, an inclusive uh, sort of dimension to democracy. And so, it, the threats depend a little bit also on, on what you define democracy to be. Um, I think the so what I try to do in this piece and what I'm trying to do in this research, which I, I think I'll I'll try to extend also to something a little bit bigger than this particular article that I'm working on, um, is to try to think about the different dimensions in which this threat can take place. Um, and think that you know those dimensions sometimes go hand in hand, but sometimes they don't. Um, and so there's there's processes to subvert elections, um, and those processes and those threats that try to subvert elections may be about very concrete measures to uh, miscount votes or to suppress part of the vote or to um, inflate certain parts of other votes or gerrymandering of uh, in illegal ways, et cetera, et cetera. So, so those may threaten that electoral process that is core to democracy, and that, that's a, a, a big thing. Um, but there's also democratic threats that uh, seek to concentrate power through other means. Um, and, and I think that is, that is the, the key part, right? So whenever there is an attempt to concentrate power, to concentrate power in a way that goes beyond um, the rules and regulations that govern a society at that point in time, we see that you know, democracy is being threatened. Um, and, and here comes the other part of the definitional conundrum. Does a threat need to be realized in order to be a threat or is a threat something that is sort of latent there that is 
taking place, but democracy can, you know, survive those threats. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to think not only of, of uh, turns towards authoritarianism, but also to think about where those threats and, and those sort of potential turns to authoritarianism begin. What are the, the again, the latent threats that we see there? Um, and so in this sense, I think it, it's a, it's a I, I deal with sort of a intentionally broad definition of what a threat is uh, and, and try to, again, see whether there's a difference between the type of threats that, you know, more left-leaning governments had in, in Latin America and, and, and threats that come from more right-leaning um, governments. And, you know, Perhaps a little bit paradoxically, I find that you know many of these threats are common, uh, regardless of the ideological orientation, and that the common theme many times has to do with different ways of trying to subvert the the democratic process and trying to sort of accumulate more power um, and concentrate that power in fewer hands. Um, part of the the arguments that were out there. Uh, during the left term in Latin America, where that, you know, left turn governments were particularly good at this uh, concentration mm -hmm. of power because they were more popular, right? Um, and, and so I think that there's something to that. Uh, but I think right now we see certain right leaning governments also attempting this concentration of power, perhaps through non popular ways. So, so in Brazil, Bolsonaro has relied more on the power of the military than, than, than previous precedents in Brazil, right? And so that in itself is a potential latent threat, even though he hasn't turned fully undemocratic, that may happen, right? And so so I think that's the, the, the type of analysis that I'm trying to carry out. Okay, that's super interesting. Um, for this piece, are you looking at the region as a whole? Or are you, did you pick several case studies to work with? Um, how have you constructed that? Yeah, so um, that's one of the thing parts that I'm struggling with. Mm -hmm. So I, I bit a bit more than I could chew, which I don't recommend students try to do, uh, but say as I say and not as I do. Um, and so it, the, the initial version of the paper had uh, 10 cases in the region. Um, and part of what reviewers have asked me to do is to narrow this down um, and to speak more in depth about fewer cases. Uh, I, it's hard because on the one hand, I do think that the intellectual value of the research is there if, if I focus on a, on a large sample of cases um, and try to sort of see broader trends that are not, you know, particularly being driven by any individual country. On the other hand, given an article format, you can't really write about 10 cases in, you know, 10,000 words. And so what do you do there? Um, and this is why I'm thinking I may do uh, I may do something a little bit shorter for this piece that I'm writing and then try to expand that into some sort of short manuscript that gives me a little bit more freedom to 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 look at more cases. Um, and so the cases that I've been looking at are both cases that turned left in different ways in the region, such as, you know, Bolivia, Venezuela. Um, Ecuador, uh, but also other more moderate uh, left uh, turn cases such as, you know, Chile or, or Brazil, Uruguay even, and Argentina. Um, and then I'm, I'm looking at cases that did not turn left at that point in time, such as Colombia, um, and, and I think, and, and Mexico. And so this is, this is part of the attractive 
portion of this to me, which is looking at different trajectories. And that mm -hmm. necessarily requires us to look at a, at a broad sample of, of different countries. Yeah, of course. Um, do you think there's a reason, because you said one of the commonalities across the tra trajectories is the subversion of the democratic process. Do you think there's a reason behind that? Like, I know for me, in what I've consumed a lot of times that we talk about US involvement in the region um, during the Cold War and how much that affected the governments there. But I, I feel like it's probably broader than that. I don't know, what, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's always tempting to think about the international influences uh, that play in a region, particularly in a region that, you know, in terms of economic development is very dependent on what happens elsewhere, not only in the US, but also in China and Europe, right? When you think about economic terms, the, the uh, you know, ebbs and flows of, of the Latin American economy are very much linked to what happens elsewhere. Um, and as we know, there's a deep interrelation between what happens economically and what happens politically. Uh, and so, so it's really tempting to, to be deterministic and say, you know, there's a large role played by the US, there's a large role played by China, and, and that kind of determines what happens in the region. I, I'm a little bit resistant to this, um, not because I don't think that international influences aren't important, but rather because I want to almost as a political project, I, I want to emphasize the role of agency and, and what can happen at the national level and the fact that national level and subnational level politics matters um, and that there's real power uh, in, in that, in decisions that are made and in how governments act. Of course, those decisions and that power is constrained by, by what happens internationally. It's not like, you know, the world is your oyster, you can do whatever. Sure, there, there are constraints, but I think the, the role, at least at this point in time, of economic factors is more on that structural level, on that level of, of determining the options and the policy options, uh, or the policy option sort of sphere um, that, that can be among the options that can be chosen, um, and not a you know, an influence that ends up saying, okay, this is what will happen because of the role of the US. I think this is slightly different when we think about, you know, Cold War period, um, especially when we think about the role of the US in Central America. Um, but even in cases where it's proven that the US supported coups, such as in Chile, there's an underlying political structure in Chile um, that was very rich, very complex, and that without that, it wouldn't have, the US influence wouldn't have determined a coup in a place like Chile. You know, Chile had a division between right wing, uh, left wing, and, and sort of a more centrist party, the Tres Tercios, the three thirds. Um, and that was a ripe condition for, um, you know, for polarization. And the US played a role in sort of nudging that polarization along and in, in, in sort of, uh, you know, helping along the coup. But, but the coup, the Pinochet coup and the Samanists in Chile, well, we don't know, right? But powers were in Chile that may have determined that anyway, uh, even without US influence. Um, that's my sense. I'm not exculpating the US here. I'm just saying, 
almost as a political project, I want to say what happens in Latin America matters, and it matters a lot. No, absolutely. So as a researcher, how how do you resist being deterministic? Um, yeah, just in general, like from your sources, from your point of view. I mean, even as a student, I think I face that a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a great question, right? Because um, many times we embark on, on research uh, and we, when I say we, I say not only professors, but also students, right? You start writing a paper and, and you know what you want to find, right? You have a point that you want to make and you start putting your kind of ducks in a row to make that argument. Um, and that is, you know, what many people do, but to some extent, we need to be open to, to the possibility of being wrong. Um, and we need to be open to, you know, the sources telling us a different story than, than, the, than the story that we had made up in our mind because of sort of intuitions or because of political beliefs or our own political ideology. And I think this is key to producing high quality and, and not only high quality, but also sort of reliable research. I'm not gonna talk about objectivity because I don't think a, a researcher can be objective, but you can be open to the possibility of being wrong. Um, and, and I think in, in that sense, there's a, there's a humility aspect to research of saying, of trying to go into questions with an open mind and to think, you know, uh, what, what, my, what my thoughts are before I come in may change and be open to, the, to what we read, to evidence, to um, sources to tell us that in fact, things work in a different way than the way that we thought. Going back to the, the project on democratic threats, the whole project actually, started because my, my, the person that was my supervisor when I did my PhD, uh, Kurt Weiland, um, wrote a piece about democratic threats during the left turn that I, I didn't quite like um, and I wanted to disagree with. And so the whole reason for me to start with that was like, I'm gonna disagree with him. And in the end, after like doing a lot of research, I ended up kind of agreeing with him. Even though my starting point was like, I'm going to disagree because what he said, you know, is really problematic. And I'm like, huh, man, he was, he was kind of right. Um, and, and so I expand on that and I throw in caveats, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more convinced about the value of what he said back then um, after, after sort of really digging in and really doing a, a lot of reading and looking at a lot of sources and uh, interviewing people, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think um, it was humbling for me, but I, uh, but I think for students in gearing towards a paper, I think you need to go with questions more than answers um, and be open to, to discovering new answers, to, um, to not even be proven wrong, but to go in saying, I don't know, I don't know what the answer to this question is. It needs to be an honest question. Um, and I think that's the, that's the growing part of this. Um, this is very different than being a lawyer, right? When you're a lawyer, you are, you're paid to argue a case um, and you know what that case is and you are sort of fitting evidence to make your case. As researchers, that's not what we do. Yeah, I think that's, that's very helpful here because I read, or for example, I'm taking uh, a methods course for IDS right now. 
um, with Professor Diana, Diana Allen and it's a great course. And we read uh, a paper about formulating questions for ethnographic research and it was like, the main thing was you need to have a question and then uh, evolve it throughout your research. Um, but I think the diff there's a big difference between reading that and then hearing that in practice and hearing that from people who research. So just for me, like to hear that a lot is very helpful and it forces me to keep that in mind. Um, so thank you. Um, I want to transition. We have like 10, 15 more minutes yeah. to corruption, um, which is what you did a PhD on and you worked on it. Just in general, could you, you know, this probably is a long answer, but talk about just the reality of corruption in the region at the moment. Um, how does it manifest? How can how can we see it manifesting? Yeah, so so corruption, like democracy, is one of these like very loaded terms. Right. Um, and and it is what we call uh, um, you know one of these terms that we inherently associate with something that is um, that is bad, right? We think corruption bad, right? Um, and so we have a tendency many times to associate anything that we think is negative to corruption. Um, and so a lack of development, well, that's because of corruption. And uh, you know, a politician that we don't like, well, that's because of corruption um, and, and et cetera, et cetera. It, it's one of those terms that we really go at and use as a placeholder for anything that we don't like many times. And I think that's, that has muddled the waters of the study of corruption, not only in Latin America, but elsewhere as well. Um, and I think um, that, that's one problem with it. The second problem with studying corruption is that it is very widespread. Um, it is actually, I would say it's so widespread that it's sometimes more interesting to ask the question, why is certain country or certain society or certain politician not corrupt? Um, you know, you know, corruption at its core means using your public power for personal gain. Um, whether that personal gain means getting rich, whether that personal gain means, um, you know, advancing your policy, the your policy preferences through non-valid means, right? So it's the misuse of public power for private gain. Um, and, and so the question is like, why wouldn't you, right? You occupy this power, you have certain interests. What leads any human being not to do that? And in that sense, we can say actually corrupt, being corrupt is the normal thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so we need to think perhaps what leads someone not to be corrupt. Um, but going back to a little bit about your question. So corruption is, 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 is it's only possible when we start defining a, a public sphere, right? Uh, we need embedded in the definition is the fact that you occupy some public role and you still have your personal interests. And so this separation between a public role and, and a private role is sort of at a core what, what results and what results in the tensions leading to um, the blurring of those boundaries. Um, I don't want to put it at an individual level, right? This is a society, societal level. We create a state um, to organize us, to simplify how we're governed, because to solve many collective action problems, right? If we don't have a state, we don't have roads, we can't go from one place to the other. We don't have public services. There's all of these things that we need the state to do 
Um, and, and in order to, for a state to do that, we need people in that state to be doing that. And those people aren't just public officials 24 seven. They also have personal lives. They also have family members. They also have their houses, their cars or whatever, right? Um, and so we're putting those public officials in a complex situation of having to you know, give them, make act in the public interest while at the same time, they're private individuals that care about their lives, right? And so this is a very structural problem. The thing is in Latin America, we generally talk about high levels of corruption because the construction of those institutions has been to some extent problematic, right? And to some extent, the construction of those institutions was geared towards representing certain sectors of society over others. State creation, um, if you read Tilly, right? Um, state creation is not this peaceful project of people embracing one another and saying, oh, let's come together and solve the collective action problem. No, it's, an, it's a fight, right? Wars create states. Um, and so, and wars exclude and kill people, right? And so a state many times is created in exclusion of certain, of certain interests. Um, and so in the case of Latin America, this is, this is uh, true not only locally, but also, um, you know, we need to think about a past of colonization, right? Where there was also external powers there. And so the, the building of the state is really muddled in, in all of these, these dynamics. Um, and so what I would say is given all of this to expect anything but a corrupt state uh, and, and anything but like a wide, you know, a, a widespread of corruption is perhaps unrealistic. And what we need to think is, okay, what do we do now uh, to try to curb the impact of corruption on people's well-being? on economic development, on representation, on inclusion, on all of these questions. Um, I, think, I think that the parting point needs to be one in which we take the world as corrupt um, and we think about what can we do to make that corruption not as impactful as it has been uh, in the last couple of centuries, honestly. Yeah. Um, so when you worked with anti-corruption policies in Argentina, I'm sure you study it still. Uh, what kind of mechanisms were you trying to put in place as policies? Were they legal? Were they social, economic? Yeah. So it, it's funny because many of the many of the things that I worked on, and this was 20 years ago now, uh, a little bit over 20 years ago. Um, part of many parts of that anti-corruption agenda are still part of the anti-corruption agenda today. So we were talking about. Freedom of Information Act and transparency policies and a lobby registry and all of these things to make the government's actions more transparent. And the idea here is like sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? If people can't be sort of, you know, under the radar with their actions, if they think that whatever they do is going to come out in the public sphere, they may be less inclined to, to misbehave. Right, that is the main principle of anti-corruption policies on the one hand, right? So you make it so that people are more sort of afraid of incurring corruption because they were gonna be discovered. That's one part. That's all of these measures of Freedom of Information Act, lobby registry and what have you. And then the other part is, well, once you are discovered you will be punished. 
And so enforcing corruption prosecutions, uh, creating laws, banning certain things, empowering investigators to control what government officials do, and then penalize, expel from office, et cetera, et cetera, those, those corrupt actors. And this is based on sort of a pretty individualistic model of corruption, thinking, okay, if you are a public official, what will make you, you know, not behave in a corrupt way? Well, the fact that you may get caught and, and pay a, a big price for it, right? That's mm -hmm. that's in, a, in the simplest way possible what undergirds a lot of the anti-corruption policies. Um, many of those things have proven really, um, I, I wouldn't say ineffective. I would say not entirely effective. Um, but here I want to draw a parallel, right? So the fact that we're talking about the same anti-corruption policies 20 years ago as we do now, and that we haven't solved corruption, I mean, that's no different from development, right? That's not different from a, you know, equality-inducing policies. Should we throw out all of econ because we haven't solved poverty? Um, econ has been around for I don't know how many years studying poverty, and we haven't solved poverty, therefore econ has failed at poverty? No, we still, there's advancements, there's different things, there's ways to study, there's different measures. These are really complex questions. Similarly, with corruption, it, it is so embedded in how we create our states and I'm afraid to use this word in human sort of behavior and nature then trying to curb these things it's a really 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 hard thing to do um, and so even though that the policies have not curved corruption anywhere to 100% you know it's it's an evolving it's an evolving thing right it's an evolving study and an evolving pu public policy field where we need to keep on thinking about different ways of controlling. And, and then there's the big question of who controls those who control. Um, and, and so all of this discourse is, was there when I was working on anti-corruption policies uh, in the, it was called the Department for Planning of Transparency Policies in the Anti-Corruption Office in Argentina. And, and is there now um, as well. Um, it, it's just a really, really, really hard task at hand. Yeah, of course. I think um, to wrap up, I, I am interested in the relationship between development and corruption and how they affect one another. But like, as you said, um, you know, corruption is so widespread and development still happens. It doesn't, I don't think it curbs it, but I mean, even if it's so widespread, do you think that there's a specific relationship? Do you think that they affect one another? I think there is an effect, right? And, and, and I, I actually, I would say there's different effects. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, depending on which level of aggregation you think of, of and also what time frame you're thinking of. Um, and so I'm going to try to be as brief as possible. But, you know, on the one hand, you're company X, right? And you want to expand your business to do uh, something that you weren't doing before. And there's a lot of red tape, mm -hmm. okay, in order to do that. A lot of bureaucratic measures that you need to do in order to switch from uh, one sector to producing something else. Um, and so for that company at that point in time, um, it, is, they, they, it is rational, one would say, to try to jump over that red tape and pay a few bribes to get that, those permissions earlier on in order to conduct that business. And so this, is, this led people to say, actually, corruption can be good for business development on a short-term scale for individual companies. The problem is, 
once we aggregate that, if every company is doing that, then we're, we're back where we started. And it's again, more and more complex, right? And so this works, this mechanism of greasing the wheels works at individual level, but not at the aggregate level, right? So, so that's one part. Then when we start thinking at, a, at the aggregate level, we see that corruption has an effect of sort of lowering development levels. It doesn't stop it, um, uh, but it sort of diminishes the level of economic growth and the redistribution in particular of the spoils of development, right? And so if we think about Suharto um, and Suharto's government, you know, the, the country grew a lot during Suharto's regime, there was widespread corruption. So corruption didn't prevent development from happening, but think about what would have happened without corruption, right? Maybe the country would be in a complete different plane at, the, at, at this point in time, right? And so I think this is, this is one way of thinking. So corruption slows down development, okay? And the final effect that I think is interesting to think is not the, the growth level or the development level, but who benefits out of that development? Uh, and I think corruption has a, a distributional effect here and a negative distribu distributional effect here. I think what happens with corruption is you may get development, but what you may get is development that leads towards some people gaining a lot more than others. Um, and I think that's the, and on aggregate, like the country has developed, but some people have developed, you know, 10 and others have developed one, right? And so, uh, that is complicated because when you start adding up that over time, you have an, a country with increased levels of inequality. Um, and so, and so that distributional effect of corruption, I think is key and perhaps even more important than the overall aggregate effect of corruption on say growth level. Does that make sense? Is that, yeah. uh, it's, it, I know it's complex. And I know I'm, I'm, you know, drawing pictures with my hands as I speak that people won't be able to see, um, but but that's the best way that I have to explain. So corruption has two effects, right? One aggregate effect on the overall level of development, um, which it can be measured uh, imperfectly, but it can be measured, and another effect on the distributional effects of development. And my hypothesis or my thought, given the evidence that I've seen, is that that second, that latter effect on distribution is actually more harmful than the overall level of impact on the overall level of development. Well, thank you for speaking about these really broad topics, but um, which is tough. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very interesting to consider. I'm kind of just trying to take it all. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Is there anything else that you wanted to add today? No, I think, uh, you know, I think this, it's, it's nice to have a, a good chat uh, about all of these things in a context in which, you know, you know, the word pandemic isn't mentioned even once. Uh, but to break that magic, I, I will add the word pandemic at this point in time and say that I think, you know, pandemic makes research harder. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes research harder for everybody. Uh, it also sort of has shifted how we all guide our research in, in many ways, and it has shifted research agendas. Um, and uh, I would encourage students in, when, when they choose what they want to research to be guided by 
not only questions that are hot at that point in time, but questions that are interesting going beyond what the current conditions are, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so right now, a lot of people were thinking about pandemic issues and that has geared, I've seen students writing on this quite a bit, that's fine. Uh, but I think I think we need to sort of also go back to, to big sort of structural questions as well. Same thing as what we're gonna see now with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, more and more people are going to be thinking about that. And that is completely understandable and, and, and good in many ways, but you know, we shouldn't lose sight of sort of bigger structural questions of geopolitics in this case that may undergird that dynamic as well, right? So, so don't be bogged down by uh, the, the specific context that we are living in and try to focus on, on sort of bigger questions many times. I think that, that would be my two cents. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great way to wrap this up. If you want to hear more from Catalyst, you can find us on Facebook at Catalyst McGill, on Instagram at IDSSA Publications, or at catalystmcgill.com. Oh.